If you've been in church circles long enough, you've probably heard the phrase, the church is not a building, it's a people. And this is a statement commonly used to curb the materialism of megachurches and constant building campaigns. And it's a true statement so far as it's just aimed at that materialism. Um, the, or the idea that uh, a building somehow magically makes people into Christians because they go there every week. So we don't want to go in that direction. But sometimes we can go too far in the other direction and act as though God doesn't care about buildings at all, or that buildings inherently are bad. And the problem is God commanded Israel to build a building. He commanded them to build a temple. And the book of Haggai is centered around Haggai, the prophet's call, for Judah to rebuild the temple as a sign of their trust in God. Now, God doesn't need a house. God does not dwell in houses made by hands. But his people need to build him a house because their actions reflect their priorities. They work diligently to build their houses while the house of the Lord lies in ruin. So the church is not a building, that's true, but that doesn't mean that buildings are irrelevant. And sometimes, The work of our hands can reveal the posture of our hearts. And this is what Haggai is trying to get into the minds of his people and what he's trying to get into the minds of us. This is Understanding Haggai. Haggai is the first of the post-exilic prophets. That is, the prophets who ministered after Israel returned from exile in Babylon. So he, along with Zechariah and Malachi, are tasked with guiding the restoration project of God's temple, which, if you remember in the end of 2 Kings, was destroyed as a judgment of God against Judah's sin. And this happened in 597 B.C. So remember, God was saying, hey guys, if you keep sinning, if you keep uh, going after false gods, I'm going to kick you out of the land. And there, there comes a point where judgment is inevitable. And if you think about the pre-exilic prophets, a lot of the people we've been looking at, they're kind of warning Israel, being like, hey guys, if we keep going down this path, it's not going to be good. And finally, God's judgment comes. He destroys Jerusalem, destroys the temple, and brings Judah into exile in Babylon. And after about 70 years of exile, a couple things happen. Persia conquers Babylon in 539 BC. And one year later, the king of Persia allowed the exiled Israelites to return back to their land and rebuild their temple. And the return of the exiles came in two waves. The first wave uh, is when they came back and laid the foundation of the second temple. And the second wave is the wave that Haggai is part of. Now, Haggai is coming in with Zerubbabel, who's a ruler, and Joshua, who is a high priest. So these are the three important offices in Israel that are coming back to restore the kingdom. So in the year 520 BC, which is about when Haggai is ministering, rebuilding efforts are stalling. People are becoming cynical and skeptical about whether God is actually going to restore Jerusalem to its former glory. And it's in light of this cynicism that Haggai delivers a word from the Lord to spur the returned exiles to finish their work. This is Haggai chapter 1. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. 
Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why? declares the Lord of hosts. Because of my house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God, and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. The return from exile marked a pivotal moment in Israel's history. And yet, despite an initial round of vigor, the return exiles found themselves in less than ideal circumstances. Persia still reigns over Judah, and Jerusalem's rebuilding project lacked the glory foretold by Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. In other words, their expectations were not met. They return to the land and they're disappointed. And now they're questioning whether God's promised age of restoration, promised age of redemption that the prophets spoke about had in fact begun. And if it hasn't, if this isn't a time of restoration, then what are we doing? Why are we even bothering rebuilding this temple? Now, the temple is the center of Judah's life. It's a visual symbol of God's presence with his people. And this is why the destruction of the temple by the Babylonians was such a cataclysmic event. It marked God's removal of blessing over his people. Yet, even though they've returned from exile and live in the promised land, their crops are failing. They sow much but harvest little. They eat and drink, but they're never satisfied. They wear clothes, but they're still cold. And they gather money in the bags and they drop onto the ground because they're full of holes. And the land is completely futile. It's not bearing fruit, which is a sign of God's curse. So something's not complete. Something is missing. They're back in the land, but they're not back to where they think they should be. God will not return his blessing to the land until these returned exiles turn their hearts toward him. And the sign of their repentance is their willingness to rebuild his house. But God's people remain apathetic. They're building their own houses. They're tending to their own matters while the house of the Lord is in ruins. They don't recognize that God is in their midst. 
And God is consistently trying to get their attention. He basically says to them, why do you think the land's failing to produce crops? Why are droughts happening with such frequency? And the returned exiles are kind of imitating the sins of their forefathers that got them exiled in the first place. They're turning a blind eye to God's warnings, to God's discipline. And they look around at their lack of blessing and they just assume that maybe God has abandoned us or maybe he's not faithful. Or maybe he's not going to do what he said. And the irony is that the very futility of the land, the very curses that they're under is actually a sign that God is still with them. Right? He's got to actually be with them in order to see what they're doing and curse what they're doing. So God is with them, and that is why he disciplines them for their apathy and their cynicism. This is actually God caring for his people. He does not want their hearts to become hardened like the generations before. And what's amazing is God actually stirs up the spirit of Zerubbabel. So God, by the spirit, stirs up Zerubbabel, Joshua, and the people to fear the Lord and get to work. That's verse 14. And it's very promising. It seems like, man, maybe this is the new age because Israel's obeying. Jerusalem seems to have a bright future now. What if this could be the renewal we've been waiting for? And this shows us that God's blessing returns to a people by his grace alone. God commands his people to obey, and then he empowers his people to obey. God is the only solution to their problem, right? It's not like they can sit there and go, well, we're just going to fix everything on our own power. No, it is God himself who stirs up the spirit of the leaders and stirs up the spirit of the people to turn their hearts back and to obey the Lord and to rebuild the temple. So the only proper response to cynicism and apathy from our perspective is repentance and reception of his grace. We have to repent. Lord, I'm sorry for being cynical, for not trusting your promises, for not believing that you see us and that you care for us and that you have a plan for us. The cynical eye sees through all things with a smug sense of self-confidence, while the rest of the world indulges in fantasy. Right? We call it like it is. We stare bravely into the face of reality. We know what's really going on. But the problem with thinking that you can see through everything, as C.S. Lewis observes, is that you end up seeing nothing at all. You see through everything, you really see nothing. And apathy and cynicism blind us to the work of God in our midst. So repenting of our unbelief, repenting of our cynicism, that, that's really what we're talking about. Cynicism is unbelief. It's doubting God. It's not believing that God is who he says he is. And we need to receive with gladness the grace of God in Christ. Cynicism only makes sense if there is no God, but if there is a God, then then hope abounds. I think Haggai is a great reminder that God's people are to be marked with hope, not cynicism, not despair. They're actually in the middle of all these prayers. Imagine them being in exile saying, Lord, bring us back to the land. Bring us back to the land. Let us come out and go back to our home and rebuild our home. And, and now it's happening and, and they're all ho-hum about it. They have forgotten and, and it happens to us all the time. We pray for something. We pray a long time for it over maybe weeks or months or years. And then it finally happens. And then we're just thinking about the next thing. We grow apathetic and cold again. And Haggai is reminding us we are people of hope. And that means we need to have our eyes open to the ways that God is working in our midst. And to remember that God really is in control. And when he calls us to faithfulness, he's calling us to hope. So we should never grow apathetic. We should never grow bored or act as though everything is dull. But rather, 
we should trust in the Lord and we should not obey him while rolling our eyes. It should be a joyful, glad obedience because God is faithful and he is good and he is with us in our midst. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the Four Oaks Midtown podcast and leave us a review. You can also access all of these teachings at fouroaksmidtown.com slash teachings. That's all for this episode. See you next week. Thank you.